and death eventually. With, with each other, with their home and their environment, the fabric of divine order was for our joy. And that fabric of divine order was torn with sin, with the demonic wisdom. And we feel this in ourselves, in our relationships today, don't we? Don't you feel the disorder today in your own soul? In your relationships? I've been meditating on this passage for two weeks now. Because uh, I was thinking about preaching it last Sunday, even though we went through Psalm 16. And as we we're doing that, you know, um, uh, I was sharing with some of the brothers a uh, temptation into lust. That I gave into lustful thoughts. And um, me and Peter were talking about, about what do I share with Francis as my wife? So I'm looking up biblical counseling videos. David Pallison has one biblical counselor on what do you share with your wife? And I'm wrestling with this as I'm reading James 3. And um, I've been reading James 3 like every day. And I woke up at 2 a.m. and I couldn't sleep. Remember last week we talked about when your thoughts trouble you at night, God is there guiding you? So I'm thinking about Psalm 16, I'm thinking about James 3, and I'm waking up in the middle of the night because I've been debating in my head what to share with Francis and what not to share. And the, the word disorder came to my mind. There's disorder in your life, PJ, because you're trying to figure out what to share and what not to share. And there might be some good things, godly ambitions, but there's also some self-centered protection in there. You got to figure all that out and come to me with it. And come to your brothers and go to your wife in all the right ways. Stop trying to control the situation. Because you're supposedly trying to find out the biblical counseling way, but is there selfish ambition there? If there is, you know what you're going to find? Disorder. Unrest. Inside and outside. So it produces disorder. And then if you look at verse 16... Still, not only disorder, but every evil practice. Evil practices come from this subtle and powerful pushing God out of the center and goal of your life. Even if it's like a subtle, just one inch off of the center. But what it leads to is evil practices. Sin and more sin. And corruption. And we know from James 1 verse 16, you guys know from Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death. But we don't need to go to Romans. We can just go to James chapter 1 verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and these evil practices. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Look at James 1.16. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to? To death. To death. And so we see here that the consequence and outcome ultimately from your earthly wisdom is not only disorder in every evil practice, but eventually death. Death. Eternal death executed and inflicted by the righteous and holy God and creator. That is the consequence for your evil and the end of your supposed wisdom. It ends in death. For your evil practices, your bitter envy, for all of our sin, it ends in death under God's judgment in hell forever. Now the good news of the gospel, if you're not a Christian, here's the good news of Christianity. God sent his son, the holy God who judges us, is the same Holy God who sent His Son, God the Son, to live for us and to take that eternal death for us. He took the divinely executed death on Himself on the cross and He rose from the dead on the third day so that if you repent from your sins and your selfish ambition and your bitter envy and your excuse making and you trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, God will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus, will be saved. So call on Jesus today, this morning, to save you from your sins. 
Because if not, this wisdom will lead to disorder, more and more disorder, and more and more evil practices, and eventually death. Your life will just unravel, it continues to unravel. Who's the wisest person in the Bible besides Jesus? Solomon. Solomon. Did he get caught up in selfish ambition and bitter envy? Yeah, Solomon's life did not end well. In chapter 11, which is the last chapter of his life, 1 Kings 11. In 1 Kings 11, he is so given over to idolatry of worshiping the gods with his wife, with his wives. You know how many wives he had? 700, 700 wives and 300 sex slaves, concubines. That's right. So he gave over to adultery. Gave, over, gave himself over to idolatry while he was still the wise one worshiping God. You see how that could just, you can have God there. You can write all these proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet he's not fearing the Lord, even though he's writing about the fear of the Lord at the end of his life. Right? A hypocrite. Idolatry, judgment pronounced. And so God says, I'm going to rip ten tribes from you. I'm going to raise up someone else to be king of the ten tribes. And so in verse 40... Solomon, overtaken by bitter envy and selfish ambition. You know what he tries to do? God raises up a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a servant of Solomon's. Then, then he rebels against Solomon, and Solomon realizes this is the guy God is going to give the, the ten tribes to. Now what does Solomon try to do to Jeroboam? He tries to what? He tries to kill him. Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam when Jeroboam is God's appointed man to take the ten tribes. What's wrong with that if you're Solomon? Is that wisdom? To try to kill Jeroboam? Why is that not wisdom? You guys tell me, why is that not wisdom? He's bitter. It's bitter envy. Who, who is he ultimately opposing? He's opposing God. He's gotten so into his bitter envy and his ambition... That in his desire to secure his kingdom, he's actually opposing God's judgment on him. Rather than humbly submitting to it. The wisest man in the world, who wrote all these proverbs, cannot submit to God's judgment for his idolatry. That's disorder. That's what happens when you're duped and you think you're wise and you're really not wise. It leads to disorder in every evil practice. And that would play, and that, that folly of Solomon would plague Israel for the next three to four hundred years. So discern true wisdom so that we follow wise leaders toward maturity in Christ. How do we do it? Focus on conduct, not talk. Anyone can talk wisdom, anyone can spout out Bible words, anyone can preach a sermon behind this pulpit for an hour, but focus on their life, their conduct. Secondly, Identify false wisdom. Lastly, thirdly, recognize true wisdom. Okay? Recognize true wisdom. Look at verses 17 and 18. Seventeen and eighteen. But the wisdom from above. Let's just stop right there. The wisdom from where? From above. The other one was not from above. It was earthly. So this one is from above. It's not earthly. It is what? Heavenly. It's heavenly. We've got to realize the source of wisdom. It comes down from above. It comes down from heaven. It is a spiritual wisdom. It is oriented towards God and our relationship with God. 
It is a divine wisdom, not a demonic wisdom. So instead of earthly, it's heavenly. Instead of unspiritual, it is spiritual. And instead of demonic, it is divine. This wisdom, the source of wisdom, that's what we're talking about right now, the source of wisdom is from God. It's from God because the only true wisdom can come from God. We read, Royce read, in Proverbs chapter 3, that God founded the world on wisdom and understanding. So if we're going to have wisdom and understanding, we must get it from God. He's the one who founded it, right? We must get it from God. And not only from, from those verses, look, look at James 1, 1, 5. James 1, 5. Now, if any of you lacks what? Wisdom. What do we do? Ask who? We should ask God. Why? God gives it to all what? Generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. The generous God. The ungrudging God. The happy God. The God who loves you and wants you to have and grow in wisdom. Spiritual and divine wisdom is given by God. And in the context of James chapter 1, it brings joy in your trials. It brings endurance in your trials. It brings, it, it brings maturity in your trials. Right? That's James 1, 2 through 4. Uh, consider a great joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials. You're tested. You're, you're beyond yourself. You don't know what to do. That's a trial. Consider joy when you don't know what to do. Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its complete work so that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And if you lack something, if you lack wisdom, ask God. So these trials by God, ordained by God, push God into the center of our lives so that our joy is being fulfilled and full, filled out. He is our treasure, and wisdom grows, and maturity grows in these trials. So what does wisdom look like? Look at verse 17. Now, hold on, pause before you look at verse 17. Can anyone, what are the fruit of the Spirit? Let's name the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The wheels are falling off the wagon. Gentleness and self-control, right? Okay, self-control. You guys know that. Now, don't look at James 3. What, what's wisdom from above? It's first what? Pure. Peaceable. Gentle. Gentle. Yeah, yeah we, don't know, we don't know that well. Okay, we don't know that well. Just a side challenge. I think you should memorize this. I think this list should be as much, as much on your fingertips as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This is good for your soul. It's good for your soul to know the fruit of the Spirit. It's good for your soul to know what the heavenly wisdom is. I challenge all of you to memorize verse 17. That's one, one, one application, one homework assignment. Memorize this list. Know what heavenly wisdom looks like. Now let's think about this list together. Wisdom from above is first what? Pure and then what? Then peace-loving. Now notice he doesn't just say pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant. He says first pure, then peace-loving. That's strange. Why not just get into the list? Why do you, why do you have to, like, James is going out of his way to signal there's an order here. Purity before peace. Purity before peace. First purity, then peace-loving. In that order. 
Now, what is purity? Purity, holiness, righteousness, obedience to God and his word, not mixed with sin or disobedience or evil or compromise. The world wants us to, to get rid of this. Everyone wants to talk peace. Let's just get along, right? Brothers and sisters, you need to know that peace is never the first thing to go for. If you do, I'm getting ahead of myself with the answer. Why do you think we need, we need purity before peace? Why? If you seek peace before purity, you might end up with what? False peace. Fake peace. Flimsy peace. Superficial peace. Surface peace. But not deep peace. Not real peace. Because the impurity is causing the lack of peace. Sin is what brings the disorder. If you want to restore order and peace, you cannot do it without taking care of sin first. That's why one of the questions we ask at our church regularly is, is that a sin? Where's the sin? It's not because we like talking about sin just because it's fun. It's not fun. But we want peace. But you cannot have peace if you don't have purity first. It starts with purity, then peace. This is why Jesus said that people will reject you if you're a Christian. Because you are committed to purity before you're committed to peace. And if you have other friends that you're sharing the gospel with and they don't want purity, they don't want Jesus... That might put you at odds with them because you cannot compromise the order here. It must be purity before peace. So it's first purity, then peace. Now, when we have this wisdom that's peace-loving, it leads us to true, deep, and real peace with God, real peace with others, and real peace with the world. So we need to be peace-loving. So we want to strive for purity and holiness and obedience first, then purity, or then peace. Because peace comes from it. And really, James wants to say, we want order and peace. So we're going for peace, but you cannot do it without purity first. Now, I told you, I asked you why. It's because you can't have the second without the first. But secondly, let's go even one step deeper. You know why that's the way it goes? That purity before peace? Because God is pure and holy. And we must not compromise with God first. Peace with God comes before peace with people. Peace with God comes before peace with people. The truly wise one who was, making, was, was peacemaking was always pure first. Jesus was perfect and true in his conduct. Jesus, but Jesus also pursued purity before peace. Can you, remember when, can you remember stories in Jesus' life where he wasn't at peace with people? Where he's kicking people out of, you know, when he's, when he's in conflict with the Pharisees? Or when he's, he's confronting them on their tradition? Or when he's kicking people out of the temple? Is that peace-loving? Yes, it is peace-loving. Jesus is peace-loving. It's just that you cannot have peace without the purity first. I mean, Jesus is so committed to purity before peace that when he asks God for another way besides the cup of God's wrath to save us, and God says no, he complies. Because Jesus knows that you cannot have peace without purity. And the only way for pure cleansing from sin is through him going to the cross and being the one to be thrown out of peace. Hanging on the cross in darkness and saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The darkest place, the furthest point that a human has ever experienced from peace with God, with others, and even within was experienced on that cross. 
The ultimate experience of disorder was experienced by Jesus on the cross. Because God was committed to His holiness. Christ was committed to the holiness of God. That is the way to peace. And so in His death for our sins, in purifying us by the pure and holy one, taking in our sins and eliminating those sins by His death and in His resurrection, we can now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus was committed to peace through purity. Purity first to peace. And the Father is the one who said no. The Father is committed to saving us. The Father was committed to having His people come in as His children. But the Father would not compromise to find another way to have peace. There was no other way. The only way is through the cross to have peace. Again, if you're not a Christian, I invite you to have peace with God through the purity of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection for you. Let's go on to the other ones here more briefly. So, first pure, then peace-loving, then gentle, which means there's a will. So if you're looking for wisdom among people, who are the wise men and women of BBC? Is there purity? Is, are they peace-loving? Next, are they gentle? Is there a gentleness? Are they willing to yield to others? Or are they stubborn? Are they insistent on their own way? Compliant. Next one, which is tied to that. Meek, gentleness could be translated meekness, a certain humility there to be willing to yield. The compliance would be a willingness to defer to others, an, e an ease of being persuaded, not being gullible, but wanting to be persuaded and having a disposition of wanting to be persuaded. A willingness to defer to others with a sweet spirit of compliance. That's what compliance is. It's a sweet spirit of compliance when it's not a compromise of theology or moral principles. And then next you have full of mercy. Full of mercy. This contrasts, uh, this, this um, contrasts with the, the, the tongue in verse 8, full of deadly poison. Remember that the, the tongue is full of deadly poison? But the wise person is full of mercy. And mercy is defined in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't show favoritism or else you'll, be, you'll commit sin. And then verse 12 says, Speak and act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So don't be partial towards others and play favorites sinfully. So mercy here is tied to loving your neighbor as yourself, loving all of your neighbors as you love yourself. It's the idea of meeting other needs without selfish ambition, but just the desire to do good to others. So it's full of mercy, and then not only full of mercy, but full of what? Full of mercy and good fruits. In other words, there's good results that come from wisdom, not, just, not disorder. And then next you have the word unwavering. Now, I would opt for the translation without division. But unwavering is okay. Unwavering is, if you're wavering, you're going back and forth between two ways, right? Should I do this? Should I do that? I don't know. Remember, there, you could be like a, a, um, a wave of the sea tossed by the wind, right? That's wavering. So you're, you're tossed by the wind, double-minded. That's what he's getting at James chapter 1. Here, it's, a, it's not being double-minded. It's having, it's without division. So you're single-minded. You have an undivided loyalty. You're not wavering. You know what God wants, and you're resolved to do what God wants you to do. That's wisdom. And lastly, without pretense. Not faking it. Not playing the part. But being transparent and authentic. And self-aware. There's an awareness there. 
of who they are. So they're without pretense. So we saw the source of false wisdom from hell and the source of true wisdom from heaven. We saw the characteristic of false wisdom, which is selfish ambition and evil or um, bitter envy. And we saw the characteristics of true wisdom, which is pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. And then we saw the results. What's the result? Disorder in every evil practice for false wisdom. What's the result of true wisdom? Look at verse 18. What's the result of true wisdom? What's the fruit of true wisdom? It's the fruit of what? Righteous. Righteousness. And this righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. I like how the ISV, the International Standard Version, translates this verse. Listen to it. We're talking about results. I want you to picture the image, image here because it's imagery. A harvest of righteousness is grown from the seed of peace planted by peacemakers. You hear that? You want a harvest of righteousness in your life and in your, in your family and in, among your friendships and in your household and in your workplace and in your church and in the world? You want this harvest of righteousness? It is sown, it's planted by seeds of peace, of righteous peace or peaceful righteousness by holy peacemakers, by pure peacemakers. So that's the image. You have wise, wise Christians who are peacemakers sowing and planting seeds of righteousness everywhere, holy peace and righteousness everywhere, and they're watering the seed, and they're sowing the seed in the lives and in relationships. And what does it bear? The harvest of righteousness. This is an echo of Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Because it's not just, when Jesus is talking about righteousness there in, in Matthew 5, when James is talking about righteousness here, it's not just personal righteousness. You need to understand that. It's talking about justice. Personal righteousness, interpersonal righteousness, congregational righteousness, neighborhood righteousness, societal righteousness, global righteousness, spiritual Christian righteousness. He's talking about justice, shalom, order. Order between all things. That is the harvest. That's the results of righteous people, wise people. That's what they do. They sow seeds of righteousness and peace. And you see it bear fruit in relationships. You see it change lives. You see it change families. You see it change friendships. You see it change churches. That's the fruit. That's the result. Instead of every evil practice. Instead of disorder, there's order. Instead of a lack of peace, there's peace. Instead of every evil practice, there's righteousness. There's harmony being cultivated experientially with God and with others and within themselves and with the rest of creation. This is God's righteousness that comes by His Word, comes by His Son. So let me apply this and then we'll close. Children, first to the kids. Thank you, kids. You guys have listened for a really long time. So kids, here's what I want you to do. This is what God is telling you to do in James 1.5. But God is telling you to ask God for wisdom in your trials. That's right. When you have too much homework, or when you don't want to do your homework, or when you're fighting with your siblings, or when your parents don't understand you, or when your friend is being mean to you, and you're sad, ask God for wisdom. Ask God, ask Jesus for wisdom. 
If you ask Jesus for wisdom and you want to follow him, he will give you the wisdom you need. Christian, do you see through, um, can you see through the talking and the gifting and the professing of wisdom to true wisdom in people? You know where you see it? You see it when they're under trial. You see it when they are under duress, when the pressure is on. How are you doing when the pressure is on in your life? Does it lead to purity and peace-loving, gentleness and compliance, mercy, good fruits, resolve and single-mindedness, a lack of hypocrisy? That's where your trials should be leading you, towards God's wisdom. If you're failing like I'm failing, take your sins to God and repent and ask God to grow you in the trial that you're in. Now, if you're doing well and you are walking wisely, you might say, yeah, I'm actually doing pretty good right now. You know, that's great, but that's a trial. Success is a trial. Some of you are doing well right now. Praise God for that. But if you are, the trial is, are you going to get puffed up and start to turn into selfish ambition? Or is it going to keep leading towards humility and further wisdom? What about us as a church family? Let me apply it to the church family. Do we recognize as a church that those who should be teachers and pastors and leaders in our church have true wisdom? Do we have unbiblical standards for recognizing the wise among us? I ask you regularly, who do you think should be a pastor in this church? What are your standards? Is it their articulateness? Is it the way they talk? Is it their claims? Are you enamored by gifting and claims of maturity and wisdom? Is that what impresses you, someone's talk? Or do you walk with each other deep enough to see them handle trials? Do you see the Christian joy in pain? Do you see a growing endurance and faith in the midst of big-time discouragements? Do they have a mature sense of Christ in them and for them when they're in difficulty? doesn't mean they're always smiling. But do you sense that deep rest in the Lord? That's wisdom. That's the wise and understanding among us. If you're discouraged and saying, PJ, that's not me, I'm just not wise. All right, let me encourage you, if you're discouraged. Notice that this is, the nature of this wisdom is a fruit and harvest that God brings. Yes, you need to sow seeds of righteousness, but guess what? In James 1.18, it says that you were born again. You were brought forth by the word of truth, by God's own choice. You are the fruit of God sowing seeds in your life. So if you are discouraged in your foolishness and your lack of wisdom, I just want to tell you, keep resting in the Lord. I almost want to say to you what I would say to my children when they're discouraged about how short they are and they can't ride the roller coaster right yet. Just keep growing. <laughs> keep growing. I mean, how hard is it to grow? You just keep living life. Like you're going to grow. You're going to grow. And I just want to say that if you're discouraged as a Christian. Keep leaning on Jesus. You're going to grow. It's not ultimately your power that makes you grow. You're just going to keep hearing God's word, keep resting on Christ, and you will grow in wisdom. Keep repenting from your sin. Keep being honest, and you will grow. So discern and desire wisdom, and you'll grow in wisdom. That's what a mature Christian does. Have you ever seen a church split before? Not all of you have. Some of you have seen churches split. 
Have you seen a church divided or derailed because there were leaders in that church that were quote-unquote wise in the eyes of many? Brothers and sisters, we must discern true wisdom. We must be able to identify counterfeit wisdom because if we fail, we will suffer the pain of disorder in our lives and in our churches. You will experience the pain of recognizing and following leaders who sow disorder into your life and into the lives of those you love. And our church can easily drift in that direction. But if you discern true wisdom, you will recognize the wise and want them to lead. You will support them. They will grow in wisdom, you will grow in wisdom, and you'll grow in Christ. And we will, as a church family, experience and perpetuate the fruit of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So to summarize this sermon, here's the point. We hate getting tricked by deceptive and unworthy leaders. It hurts us, and it hurts those we love. This passage, by God's grace, contrasts false wisdom with true wisdom so that we follow wise leaders toward maturity in Christ. Father, help us to discern true wisdom. Help us to identify false wisdom. Help us to not be impressed by talk and by other things besides conduct and works. Joy in trials, endurance in pain, maturity and prayer and desperation and a holy sense of rest in you when the pressure is the hardest and the highest. God, raise up leaders here men and women who are wise and understanding among us. And help us by their leadership and by our fellowship together and most of all by our communion with you grow in that wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to take now three or four minutes, maybe four minutes, to share with one another a takeaway that God had, to you, had for you from this passage. There's a reason why God